You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Hey, I want to thank you so much. Uh, we just had some great speakers recently here at Sun Grove Church, haven't we? Did you enjoy John Lloyd and Ryan Yee and Mike Millette? Yeah, let's give it up. Those guys came out and hit some home runs and uh, really appreciate them uh, just stepping in. Um, and today we're going to look at a sermon uh, from a series that I preached about a year and a half ago. But as culture has changed, just like a good book is worth rereading, so a good sermon is worth hearing. And God has had us adapt it a little bit here today. Next week, we start a brand new series called Year of the Volunteer. You're going to love it. It's going to go for about three weeks, and we're excited about that. If you have your Bible, open with me to Daniel chapter 3. Uh, the question that you and I need to ask, as our culture has been changing, have you noticed? Our world is changing, our culture is changing, everything seems to be accelerating at this time. And if you've noticed with these cultural changes, stuff that used to be just kind of, it was just the way it was. If, if you've been around the block for a few years, you're just saying things are just so different these days, the way people think and what our culture embraces and everything. And you feel maybe a little bit out of sorts. You're not sure, well, how do I fit in, and, and how does what I believe about the Bible fit into our, our modern-day culture, and where are the lines, because you used to know where the lines were, but maybe now you don't know where the lines are so much. Uh, this last uh, week, we went down to, uh, we actually went to San Francisco and saw a band called Switchfoot in concert. How many of you are Switchfoot fans? Any Switchfoot fans there? They're awesome. And then uh, we saw them in San Francisco, and then we took some vacation. We went down to San Diego and saw them at a Bro-Am surf competition, which the whole proceeds of that go to help uh, needy kids who are kind of street kids in San Diego area. And it was just great to hear them twice, but Switchfoot, in one of their albums, they say this, and I think the lyrics are really uh, appropriate. They say this, what you love is your religion, and what you say is your religion, and how you say it is your religion. In other words, whatever we love, whatever we, if we put all of our heart over money and we love money, that really becomes our religion. If we put all of our heart in, and not only what we say, what comes out of our mouth really betrays what we believe and think and feel in our heart, right? And how we say what we say really reveals what we think or believe in our heart. You might even be an atheist and be just, hey, I'm just exploring this and looking at this for the first time, the whole God kind of thing. And, and you might just say, in my heart, I'm an atheist. But actually, what you say and how you say it, that's your religion. It's really true in our culture. It's kind of lost its grounding. It's lost its values. In fact, I think for some of you, if your highest value in life is, I just don't want to offend people, then not offending people actually is your religion. You've just taken that value and you've escalated up here. So you've just said, what I really worship, what I really bow down to is never stepping on somebody's toes, never offending somebody else. And whatever it is, whether it's food is your God in your life or money is God in your life or sex or pleasure or, or experiences are God in your life, whatever it is, what happens is this, that idolatry, it's alive in our culture. We typically think of idols as little like wooden figurines or stone figures that people bow down to. When I go to India, they have like 350,000 gods. So when you preach Jesus at times in India, they're just adding one to the number. Like, I'll embrace them all. But they actually do bow down to and worship little figurines. Now, in America, we don't so much do that. 
but what we betray by what we believe in our heart shows what our religion is. And what happens is when we have idolatry alive and active in our day, the tension in our values is going to lead to a clash of deities. Who's going to be God? Are you going to be God? Or are you going to allow God to be God? And here's Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They find themselves in the country of Babylon. God allowed Babylon to come from the east and sweep in and take the nation of Israel and take many of these young aspiring men and women and others captive. They were a captive nation and carried them off to serve the kingdom of Babylon. And so Daniel finds himself there. And then his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they find themselves in service of King Nebuchadnezzar in the culture of Babylon. Our culture has turned much like Babylon. It just has. We, we don't live in a Christianized nation. We live in a culture that pushes God a little further out. And as that happens, then we begin to say, well, where does a believer in the living God fit in? How do we bring value to our culture without compromising our identity or our God? And that's right at the situation where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego find themselves in Daniel chapter 3. Look with me at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. By the way, that's 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. This massive idol out in the middle of the desert says this. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then he summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. And then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language, they fell down and they worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. You get the picture. This man has just set up a great image in his name and people are going to fall down and worship him as God, his position, his authority, they're going to fall down and worship before this graven image, probably one of the most you know, amazing feats of architecture of its time, have this gold object set up. If you're taking notes today, and I highly encourage you to, you'll realize that culture takes every opportunity to worship itself, Right? Because when you and I begin to believe that we are God, or as we think we are, we want to run our lives, live our lives, we're independent, we're progressive people, we will take every opportunity to celebrate ourselves. And that's what culture does. Culture throws worship services all the time. And so it will take every opportunity to celebrate itself. In Romans chapter 1, it talks about this transfer of worship. Worship that belongs to God is now transferred to those that are less than God authentic God. It says this in Romans chapter 1 verse 22, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God 
for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. See, culture takes every opportunity to worship itself. There are no end to the ceremonies that culture uses to worship itself. I mean, think for a minute, like the Oscars, and then the People's Choice Awards, and then you've got the Golden Globes, you've got the Grammys, but it really trickles down all the way to our kids as they play sports that every kid on every team gets a trophy because Lord forbid that anyone tells your kid that your team was last place. So we're all, it's like saying we're all gods. Let's just celebrate ourselves. Let's remove any barriers and let's just find every excuse, every way to celebrate ourselves. Culture finds and takes every opportunity to worship itself. Worship is the issue. But I got to say there's a difference between authentic worship of the living God, giving the worth that is his back to him, giving God what is due him and what culture does. Because if culture is against living God, it's really the kingdom of the devil. And i got to tell you that the kingdom of the devil is always built on forced worship. Don't we see that right here? It's forced worship. Hey, when the trumpets blow and these things, everybody bows down and worships the image of the king of Babylon. It's forced worship. But there's a huge difference between how culture tells us to worship and how God draws us to worship. See, the kingdom of the devil is built on forced worship, but the kingdom of God is built on a God who woos us in the heart. Because he realized forced worship doesn't work. It's not authentic. It doesn't really buy your adoration. But God woos us from his heart. So the issue is this. Who's going to be God? Are you going to be God of your life? Are you going to be the Lord of your life? Or is God going to be the God of your life? Is he going to be the Lord of your life? And what claim does his spoken and written word have in your life? How it shapes the way you and I think. How it operates in terms of how you and I believe and, and behave. And when we behave wrongly, how we come back to a grounded place where he shows us how to walk for our benefit and the blessing of those around us. Who's going to be God? Are you going to be God of your life? Or are you going to give his written word claim in your life? I've got to tell you, so many things that our culture celebrates don't last. My grandfather was in hospice uh, this last week. We went down and visited him about a week ago Friday. And then we went down to San Diego for a few days. We came back up to the San Fernando Valley where I grew up. And the day that we got back, he passed away. He was on morphine. He was just being kept comfortable. He'd stopped eating he had stopped drinking largely for the most part and but he loved his wife for 70 years she passed away last november he uh, loved his lord for longer and as you get to the real issues of life and death you see that certain things that our culture celebrates just don't matter do they my grandpa graduated into the waiting arms of his heavenly father and he was reunited with my grandmother and Jesus and he's able to worship and say all the, the things of life, all the things, even when the vanities of life have lost their charm and I no longer have strength to pursue the things that even culture celebrates, there's still a living God before whom I must give an account and whom I can give worship and adoration and love to a God who loved me enough to die for me. 
And then we come to the issue of culture and what culture wants to celebrate. And I'm going to assume just for a minute, as we ask about, do we allow God's word to have claim in our thinking, in our being, in our life? I'm just going to assume for a minute that there are some people in the room who have not read the entire Bible. I'm not going to make you raise your hand, but I'm just for a minute going to say if you're in the room right now or you're watching online, that there are some of you who just really have never actually read. You're, just, you're actually unaware of what the Bible says happens in our sexuality when you and I try to be God of our sexuality and operate it how we want within the freedoms that our culture celebrates. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, we looked at how people take these, these images and they transfer the living God and they begin to worship people. They begin to worship images of people and, and reptiles and other things. It said, what happens when there's a transfer of worship? What happens in the human person when you and I take things out of the context that God intended? So listen with me at Romans chapter 1, verse 24. It says, therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator, who forever is praised. Amen. He says, it goes on, verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. And in the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves a due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they will do what ought not to be done. Let me just pause right there. So what do you mean God gave them over to a depraved mind? What does that mean? What is it saying there? Like why would God give somebody over to a depraved mind? And what it really means is this, that sin has a natural depraving function in our lives that it basically it is going to just depress some of us it's greed and if you are greedy you're going to become a greedy son of a gun and other people around you're going to say you're like an Ebenezer Scrooge and they can all see it but you're blinded you might not even be able to see just how greedy you are why because sin when it takes root and that greed is fed and it grows it begins to own us and you might not even know it you've got a depraved mind in the same way, in the sexual sexuality, he's saying this. God just simply stopped restraining the natural progression of sin. He didn't intentionally do something to people so that they ended up where they end up. What he's saying is, God who says, I've got the restraint, I've got freedom, I've got forgiveness. He basically just says, at this moment, when you continually choose this, I just let sin take its natural course. He stops restraining the natural flow of sin. So sin leads us further than we want to go. It costs us more than we wanted to pay, and it makes us stay there longer than we wanted to stay. Sin traps us, and the ultimate result of sin is that we are forever after death separated from a holy and just God in a place the Bible calls hell. So what does it mean that God gave them over to a depraved mind? Is he making a judgment? No, he's saying, I'm just letting you experience the result of unrestrained sin in your life. Verse 29, they become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. 
They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do that, these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Do you see what happens when you and I have a transfer of worship? We transfer worship away from the living God and we begin to celebrate people and progress and everything else. Then sin begins to take its natural course in our life, which leads us to destruction. And so what happens? Our culture, like Babylon in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's day, will continue to celebrate and push things out that are God and celebrate themselves. Not only will they continue to operate and behave that way, but they will approve of those who practice them. So regardless of what the leaders of a land decree or allow to be legal, those legalities cannot stop the natural degradation in our lives of sin. Does that make sense? It doesn't matter what culture votes on. Sin has a natural result that leads to destruction. And no matter what's legalized, Sin is not the wise thing to do because it's not going to stop that degrading function in our lives. If you become highly greedy, you're going to become more greedy even if greed is legalized. Doesn't matter what the leaders decree if you transfer worship to Nebuchadnezzar. It doesn't change the place and the position and the might of Almighty God. It just says, do you have a restraint in your life? And the good news is this, that God loved you and I so much. They said, there's a better way. There's a way to stop that natural degrading of sin in all of our lives that leads us to separation from God. And God loved us enough that he came and he gave his own life and he stretched out through his own suffering and discomfort his life so that you and I could have freedom from the consequence of sin. So the question is, are you going to be God of your life? You're going to give his written word claim in your life. Will majority rule the truth for you? Or will you bring value to your culture without compromising your identity or compromising your God? Well, how do we do that? It's right there on your outline, and I want you to catch this. And that's this. We can stick to our theological convictions and still be loving. See, some of you in this room, you think if I stick to my theological conviction, it is incumbent upon myself to tell everybody why they're wrong. And you do it in the most unloving way. And the culture just shines you on because they just do not listen to you because you think that it's your job to defend God's truth before everybody else. Jesus had words in the New Testament for the Pharisees who would do exactly that. They were so legalistic and judgmental that there wasn't room for anybody really to be saved or be good enough. I just need to let you know, I think the church needs to prepare for an exodus of people who will say, I've tried it. I've tried money. I've tried sex. I've tried power. I've tried all these things, and sin naturally degrades me. And there must be a better way that the church needs to prepare for an exodus of people who are weary of self-worship. They're weary of sexual immorality. They're weary of the unsatisfied promises that sex outside of marriage simply can't deliver on. They're tired of it. And the church needs to say, there's good news. There's an alternative. 
And God loved you and I enough that when we can walk in his ways, we're going to experience the blessing of real life. So second, when you live counterculturally, you're going to encounter haters. When you and I live counterculturally, you're going to encounter haters. Verse 8 of Daniel chapter 3, at this time, some astrologers came forward and they denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. See, they're a little unhappy about these Jewish intellectuals coming in and being given authority in their land. There are some Jews whom you, Nebuchadnezzar, have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I've made, it's all good. Right? He doesn't want to lose the influence of these guys. These are smart guys. Yeah, I'm going to give you a second chance. I'm going to give you a chance to do what everybody else does. I'm going to give you a chance to be just like us, right? Maybe you were ignorant. Maybe you misunderstood. It's going to be all good. And he says this, but if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? What's he saying? As far as your concern and your health is concerned, I am God. And who's going to rescue you? Let's give you another chance. If you ever watch sports, particularly football, you'll you understand who the 12th man is. See, you got 11 guys who are playing on the field and they're competing and they're working so hard. And if you're in opposition against that home team, you are working against those 11 players, but you are also working against the 12th man, the crowd, the noise of the crowd. And they're going to shout and they're going to try to disrupt your life, your abilities, because they want their team to win. And you better believe it that when you live contrary to culture, you're going to hear it from the 12th man. You're going to hear it. Number three, culture expects you to subscribe to doing life the same as everybody else. You got to do things, everything the same. We all got to do it together. And you think, think differently, something is wrong with you. Some of you in this room, let me tell you, the expectations of culture, the peer pressure of culture is wearing you down. You're walking a fine line between compromising your convictions or your God because of the voice of culture. I mean, but it's not just some of the areas that are obvious. Culture expects us in every area to subscribe to doing what they're doing, whether it's healthcare, whether it's whether or not we have choice in vaccination, whether it's what a pastor says in his sermon has to be submitted to some mayor or some governor in Arizona, whatever it is, what freedoms of speech we actually do have or don't have. But the expectation of culture is we need to think the same, we need to act the same, we need to believe the same. And if you don't, something's wrong with you. Let me ask you this, though. What in your culture is tempting you right now to bow down? What in your culture is tempting you to begin to say, oh, let me just compromise a little? And maybe it's in your behavior, not just your beliefs. We all get tempted. And maybe for you, you're saying, I'll just compromise that a little bit because of the pressure of culture. 
but it's causing you to bow down before the image that culture has created, an image that can't deliver the power that you seek or long for, the life that you seek or long for. Kerry Newoff, who's a pastor up in Canada, he says this, uh, by the way, in Canada, same-sex marriage has been legalized for over a decade. I think we could learn some things from what's gone on up there in terms of, well, how does the church respond when land decrees what is going to be legal or not? He says this. I thought it was really good. He said, of the church, we are at our best when we offer an alternative, not just a reflection of a deluded or hijacked spirituality. In other words, he's saying, don't compromise your beliefs. Don't compromise your theology. But rather, the church is at its best when it says, here's my theology, my belief, and I am offering an alternative to the powerful delusion that exists. For some people, it's the materialism. And you are under a powerful delusion based on materialism. For some of you, it's greed. For some of you, it's food. For some of you, it's sex. There's powerful delusions that capture and grab people and capture them and lead them where they do not want to go. In India or other places, it actually is false gods. But here in America, they're duped there by false gods. We're duped here by materialism and self-pleasure and just thinking of ourselves as God. Either way, we're duped. So we just approach people out of love and compassion for the fact that there is a powerful delusion that keeps people from the life that they were meant to live. What do we do? We're going to humbly and consistently address all forms of sex outside of marriage. Because God says, here's a better way. But you and I get tempted to do any other thing. And, and, and you and I might get tempted. You might get tempted actually to be really inconsistent in your theology. I want to just let you know, a lot of times non-Christians are very consistent in their, in their convictions. But sometimes Christians are inconsistent in their convictions. Like, you'll be all up in arms about if two, people, two men came in here holding hands but you'd have no problem with two people living together, sleeping together all the time, who aren't married, coming in holding hands. Do you see the difference? And, and sometimes we begin to think, hey, wait a minute. We expect that people walking in here who don't know Jesus are supposed to live like people who do know Jesus. How inconsistent is that? The truth is, you and I begin to walk with the Lord for a while, and maybe some of you in this room, you're tempted. I'm not even sure you would accept you when you were lost anymore. Know what I mean? Like you would be all up in arms and judgmental about yourself because it's been so long since you've been saved, you forgot how lost you were, what a mess you were. And let me tell you, we're going to have conversations. We're going to love people. The church exists for the world. We are the hope of the world through Jesus Christ. And we're going to present the alternative of Christ to those who are under a powerful delusion. And so we will be consistent in addressing all sorts of things according to the word of God. And we're going to do it in such a loving way. Let me tell you, we will do anything we can to help you make a right decision. We'll come alongside. We'll not come along in judgment. We'll say, let me help you build a relationship that will last. Let me help you when you're tempted. Let me help you when you're hooked on porn. Let me help you when you are just a greedy son of a gun to begin to break those chains and begin to worship the living God. And because of Christ, we can. Number four, stop trying to defend yourself before the leaders of culture. This is where the last few months have just thrown some of you for a loop. 
Stop trying to defend yourself before the leaders of culture. Daniel chapter 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing fire, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Isn't that interesting? Listen to the respect they still have. They still use his title. They still use his positional authority. But they say, there is a higher authority as I honor and respect the office you hold and the decisions you make. But we know that there is a higher authority than that. But we're still going to show you respect. And truthfully, we don't have to defend ourselves before you. Have you ever noticed how people always try to reduce Jesus to just being a teacher? You know, well, Jesus is like Confucius say. You pick a little quote from Jesus, and you're like, oh, that's a good quote, teacher. And people all the time in the, in the Bible are trying to call him teacher, and you're, you're a good teacher. And they want to take, instead of him being God, God Almighty, God with us, Emmanuel, God in flesh, becoming flesh on earth, leaving the comforts of heaven to be on earth, to sacrifice himself for us, we're always trying to reduce Jesus down to something less than God, like a teacher. In Numbers chapter 17, God makes a decision. He says, Moses, your brother Aaron's going to be the high priest as we're setting up this new nation of Hebrews who have wandered out of Israel, uh, out of Egypt as God has freed them from their slavery. And the people of Israel are like, whoa, time out. We got 12 tribes here. We need some representation. So they said, we want, you know, come on, that sounds like nepotism. You're asking your, br your brother's going to be the high priest. Good job, you know. How about we, you know, how do we know the Lord decided this? So God says, all right, everybody get it. The 12 tribes get 12 sticks, dead, dried, like walking sticks. And you go get those, and we're going to take them in the temple of the Lord, in, in the tabernacle, and put them before the tent of meeting, before the Ark of the Covenant. And we're going to lay them down there, and we're going to basically just, you know, we're going to walk in there and lay it before God. And he says, the, the one dead stick that buds or grows leaves will show who God decided. So they lay all these sticks in there, and they leave. They wait about a day, a little more than a day. They go in like the next day. They go in, all the sticks are dead, except for Aaron's stick that he chose. It has leaves coming out of it. And not only does it have leaves coming out of it, but it has blossomed like flowers in a day. And not only has it blossomed, but almonds are hanging from it. Okay? God just trumps them right there. He's like, listen, it's okay if you're threatened by what I decided. Let me just show you that my decision, it's not a threat to me. I get, he just made the thing bud, and he just lays it in there. And here's all these dead things that they just lay in this room. And you come back a day or so later, and you see which one has come alive. Let me tell you, our world is full of people who claim to be God, claim to be Christ, whether it's Buddha or Confucius or Muhammad or anyone else. Fine, put them all in a box. Bury them in the ground. Come back a few days later, see who came alive. Yeah? God is able to defend himself. Why are you and I such up in arms to try to defend him? It's our own pride. We're actually trying to defend ourselves when we say we're defending him. He's perfectly able to do it on his own. And that's why we need to realize it's better to make a difference than to make a point. 
When you try to make a point, people close their ears. When you make a difference, people can hear what you're actually trying to say because you've earned the right to be heard. How great is it for the church to make a difference, offer an alternative, bring hope to a lost world than trying to make a point? Number five, sometimes you have to get in the fire before the fourth man shows up. Sometimes you got to get in the fire before the fourth man shows up. Nebuchadnezzar is not happy with their comment back to him. This is what he says, verse 19, that Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. In other words, you don't get a second chance to try to bow down. We're going straight to the fire. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. I don't know how that happens. I just assume they put like seven times the fuel in there. I don't know what the furnace looked like, if it was like a little room or a box or, or a pit or I don't know what it looked like, but apparently it was seven times hotter than it previously had been. In other words, really, really hot. And he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and they were thrown into the blazing furnace. And the king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, because they're firmly tied, now these guys combusted, and they do what anybody does when they combust. They probably ran and didn't stop, drop, and roll. They just, you know, the fire was too hot. They just ignited, and that, they were done. And so their other one, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're all bound up. They just fell into the furnace. These three men firmly tied fell into blazing furnace. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement. And he asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. And he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound, unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Want to know Why? Because we believe it's a pre-incarnate Christ that he was the very son of God in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps, prefects, governors, royal advisors crowded around them. And they saw that the fire had not harmed their body, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. And this is what the king says. He said there were three things they did, and he's amazed by it. He's so impressed by the three things that they did. He said, first of all, they trusted in him. Second, they defied the king's command. And third, they were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own God. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be cut into pieces, their houses will be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. What did he do? He said, these guys bring value to my kingdom. For the first time, Nebuchadnezzar said, there is a God who can save these men from my hand. In other words, what he realized, there is one who is greater than I. There is a God 
who could do what I formerly thought was impossible when I was worshiping myself. The guards died for what? These guards, they died. They got too close. They, they combusted. They just started catching on fire. They ran, did whatever they did. They died. They died for what? They died for the cultural expectation, for the pressure to do their job in cultural, and it led to a dead end, literally. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were willing to die for God, but he delivered. He saved them. He defended them. God shows up when you and I are roasted by culture. Let me just tell you, that sometimes the fire in your life, when the heat gets turned up in our culture, it just reveals that God has been there with you all along. You just didn't see him until you got in the fire. You just didn't see him until the heat got turned up. And what happens for you and I as believers is that the more that, that our culture pushes God out, the more God is revealed through the fire of culture in the lives of those who love him as we bring value to culture without compromising our identity or our God. And let me tell you, when God does what only God can do, the lost preach the rightness and greatness of Almighty God. That's what Nebuchadnezzar did, right? He's the lost guy. He didn't get saved. He just probably added this God to one of his list of gods, and he just said, hey, he just started to preach how good and great the living God is. Did Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego have to prove a point? Nope. God's completely able to do it on his own. Just for a moment, let's take some time just to reflect on our lives. Because I know in this room right now, there are many of us who are saying, listen, maybe, maybe in terms of what culture decides, it's thrown you for a loop. Maybe for others of you, you have thrown your arms wide open to progress of culture at the compromise of your convictions. Maybe some of you have just never known what God's word says about the dangers of taking anything like sexuality outside the boundaries he put that beautiful gift in for a husband and a wife. And maybe in your own practice, your own life, you've been behaving badly. Maybe for you, you've been making little compromises, but you've been standing in judgment on everybody else. And this would just be a great time for you to be honest with God about that. Believers in the room, but this is your time just to be honest with the Lord. You might say, I- I've, been, I've been like a Pharisee. I've been in judgment on everybody else, and I've, I've been acting out of legalism. And some of you are saying, I- I've been throwing the, my arms wide around whatever culture decides, and, and I begin to preach license. And let me tell you something that's really important here. God is not so loving that he stops becoming just. What do you mean? God loves. He's he's got the greatest love. He is the most loving. There is no greater love. He is love. It's in his very DNA. But he is also justice. And that love that he has demands that he deal justly. And he's created a furnace where those who walk away and push away from him will end up in eternity. Because he is so loving and he is also so just. He is not so loving that he stops becoming just and just says, everybody's all good. He loves you so much that he said, instead of you going to that furnace, I'll come down, I'll become flesh in the person of Christ. I will give my life so that there is an alternative to the degradation and destruction of sin. But you must choose me. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, just so you're thinking about your own life, not concentrating on anybody else around you. They just begin to draw the drapes and 
and just have some time of reflection, I want you to think just for a moment. If today you're realizing, I need to ask Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. I need to acknowledge him as God, and I need to be made into a new creation that he will come in, he will wipe away my sins, he will make me clean, he will begin to help me grow in a relationship with my creator. If that's you today, you would like a relationship like that with God, then you pray this prayer right where you're seated. You just pray right after me. Jesus, today I'm saying yes to you. I ask you to come into my life and make me a new creation. Forgive me of all my sin. I believe that's possible because you died on the cross for me. You were buried in a grave for me. And three days later, you came back alive as God for me. So I ask you to make me a new creation. Today, Jesus, I'm saying yes to you. If you just prayed that prayer, would you raise up your hand? Just right where you're seated, just raise up your hand right here on the end. Obviously, keep holding your hand up. Greatest decision you could ever make. I've got some friends who want to bring you some information about that decision you made. Anyone else in the room? That today you're just saying, that's me. Today I just prayed that prayer. That I want to love the Lord. Yes, right here on the end. That's so good. Awesome. Anywhere else around the room? Just hold your hand up. We'll have some friends who find you. We'll take the time to do it. Right there in the middle. Jack, just uh, right there. Yep. Hold your hand up long enough that one of my friends can just find you with some information. Awesome. Jesus, we are so grateful for you. Forgive us out of our pride, God, for trying to stand in judgment. Forgive us out of our pride to say that your grace is so good we can do whatever we want. You are holy. You are just. We return to you the worship that is due you. God, we thank you for what you're doing in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you give it up for what God's doing among us? Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.